G'day and welcome to the Overdrive program at Christmas time, a program that canvasses issues related to cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at the Peugeot e-partner electric van. Now, road testing a van has never been a joy to me. It's been good for neighbours who want to have something moved, but I always find it a bit of a task. This Peugeot has some quirks, but some real benefits for any employee who has to spend time in the vehicle. And we have a reflection. Listener Rodney has asked us to promote a new startup, Microlino. They have designed a new electric vehicle that strongly resembles the shape of the mid-1950s Isetta BMW microcar. We look into it. And finally, our interview. Can you look at a road network and make conclusions about the crime rate in the area? Chris Stapleton did just that at one location, and we chat about how we should be designing local road networks with a much broader understanding and impact on the community around it. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials, podcast, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube site. Look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 23rd of December 2023. When it comes time to test a delivery vehicle, a new model, then my friends are usually happy as they can then get me to deliver some of the things they've wanted to move for some time. But I tend to do it as a sense of duty because most vans are noisy little echo boxes with few comfort features and a rather tiring drive. But immediately I got into Peugeot's e-partner van and drove barely 100 metres. I was reminded of why an electric vehicle can become quite obviously good with its technology to play a significant part in the well-being of drivers on your payroll. The vehicle was quiet, not intrusive, not rattling, not feeling like you're in a tin can on wheels. Now, this is supported by Mercedes-Benz, who found that their truck drivers, big trucks, are significantly more rested or less stressed, I believe up to about 20% or more, when they drive an electric truck rather than a big rig with a diesel engine. And that makes sense when you eliminate a lot of some of the sound that's part of, as I say, a big rig. Now, when you add the benefits of not having compression braking, which produces intrusive noise for the outside community as well as for the driver, an electric van has some important benefits. Now, the e-partner Peugeot is not a huge battery powered by a lithium-ion battery with a capability of 50 kilowatt hours. That produces 100 kilowatts of power in the sort of, I suppose you call the performance mode, 260 newton metres of torque. And they say that under the standard test procedure, it can get 258 kilometres. I'd like to see that measured with a full load as well. I'm not sure exactly what they have measured that in. 60 grand to get it, plus on-road costs. And it comes with a single long wheelbase variant, the ePartner Pro Long Auto. Well, I know he loves uh, sports cars, handling and motor racing in general, but he also has a utilitarian bent. I refer, of course, to Evan Jones, our road tester, who joins us now. Evan, sitting in the e-partner van, electric van, were you comfortable? Yeah, yeah. Being a Peugeot, it has my favourite steering wheel that we all know about. It has that 
<laughs> at first glance, people think Drain's hexagonal world, but it's just so ergonomic. So that made me comfortable. And as you mentioned in your intro, the car is incredibly quiet and good sound insulation as well. So not only is it quiet inside because it's not making a noise, you don't really hear much of the outside world either. Mm. And even on top of that, it's got a good FM radio. So The controls, fairly elementary in a way. What's in front of you is quite traditional, eight-inch infotainment screen, but enough? If you use the Euro controls with the blinker on the left, which I am fortunately, but it's yeah, very easy to get uh, to adapt to. Everything falls to hand. The screen's easy to read. As long as you don't want to use uh, cruise control, it's got that horrible purge system which is hidden behind the steering wheel, which you can't see, especially at night. I've just driven an Audi. It has the same problem. And, of course, they have different buttons to press that you've really got to sit before you drive and bend your head and look behind it and play with it significantly. I found the control knobs for the temperature gauge were very elementary. They had numbers on them. And they're very small numbers, so I turned the fan up when I wanted to turn the temperature down. Uh, I would prefer colours to do it. An electric park brake, big shelves within the car. That makes it good as a van, doesn't it? Yeah, actually, load area is exceptional. It's it's nice and flat. I understand it will take a Euro pallet, no problem. It has sliding doors on both sides, Hmm. which would be important to some guys when they go to load the thing. And the rear doors swing out beyond 180 degrees, which is fantastic. Gets them right out of the way when you're trying to load said pallet in with the forklift. Quite impressive. 3.9 cubic metres loading volume, uh, which is the same as the internal combustion engine variant. You can get this with a traditional ICE. The thing that we were concerned about is, of course, it's an electric vehicle and quite a lot of charging stations are in car parks. Now, its height is quoted as being less than 1.9 metres, so I assume not by much, and that's really the limit. Well, even some car parking spaces, I think, uh, talk about 1.8. So you would have to be cautious if you are looking for a charging spot in a typical supermarket area. Yeah, that, that height was a worry. When I was driving and I went to go to a, a supermarket on the way home, and the sign said the parking was 1.8 metres, and I thought, oh, I'm not sure about the height of this thing, so I never <laughs> went there. Well, In hindsight, that was a good decision. Being electric, I say it's really good for the driver. It reduces um, fatigue, nice and quiet. And if you put it in power mode, which you really have to, its performance is, is, is acceptable. Where the issue is, as you say, its range is short. It needs to be charged. Now, the problem is it's a commercial vehicle and it needs to be on the move to pay for itself. It's clearly made for short trips, a lot of little short trips where you stop and uh, a lot of your time is spent sort of unloading without travelling great distances. It's not uh, to be travelling between town to town, I don't think. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a, a van for delivery around town or around a city like Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane where there's a, a, a relative easy access to charging points. But the problem is, I'm not sure how long it takes to charge, but your average vehicle is at least half an hour. And if you're doing 200 and something k's a day, so it turns out something case of charge, that's not really enough for um, some delivery places. It, it, it's a lot of downtime. 
you've got to be considering that it's A, not doing a lot of distance, and B, it goes back to a place, be it your home or a depot, that has more than just a single-phase three-point plug, enough to at least try and pump in to the higher rates of up to, say, 22 kilo, kilowatts. And, in fact, I think it can take higher than that. It can take a, a payload of 753 kilograms, they say. The interior mirror, did it work well? The ornament? Um, <laughs> well, obviously the, um, the, the cab is, la- is laid out for all vans, irrespective of what the rear doors are. If you had a rear door with a, um, a, a window in the back of it, yeah, it would have been fine. But, as you know, our test vehicle had solid rear doors, so that mirror was literally an ornament. Fortunately, the side doors, are, the side mirrors are quite large. I wonder, given that it's got a reversing camera, whether you couldn't turn that on. I'm not a great fan of the digital mirror, but a digital mirror is certainly better than no mirror at all. Yeah. The camera's there. If you have it as an option, that comes on the screen. It should be easy to do. It's just a, a couple of extra switches and a couple of... Well, we don't often test a van, but you found on a motorway it was a toured, given not a great distance, not town to town as we say, but nonetheless at at, at the higher 80, 90, perhaps 100 kilometres an hour, was it stable? Oh, it was a very easy car to drive on the M4. It was easier to think you were in a, in a, um, a, budget, a budget car, quite stable for a van. Very happy to drive in that respect. Peugeot e-partner comes with a five-year, 200,000-kilometre warranty. So it's assuming that it's likely to be doing some significant distance, a three-year paintwork warranty, a 12-year corrosion warranty, and an eight-year, 160,000-kilometre battery warranty. I don't think we're quite there as strongly as we might, and it would be for very selective situations but in summary, Evan, its quietness and its ability to treat the driver well, do you see this as a direction that uh, one hopes that we can continue to improve on? Absolutely. I think they're heading in the right direction. That warranty for a commercial vehicle is excellent because most, most users will probably lease the thing and the lease won't be as long as that warranty. So that takes cost of repairs out, which is great. I think it'll be accepted. Um 60 grand's a lot of money, but if you want to be socially responsible while delivering the parcels, you could, you could do a lot worse than to pick up this vehicle. One of the great things about any electric vehicle is that while you're stopped, if you want to leave the air conditioning going, the engine on, as it were, you're not producing local pollution in that spot, and it's comfortable for everyone all around. So... Again, I like that idea as a direction for electric vans. Knowing that you are reducing your range. Hmm. But having said that, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, it's a much better vehicle to drive under power than under standard. But the range difference wasn't that great. So it was only about like 20K. Yeah, I I wouldn't have any problems with running around in power all the time and then leaving the air on because the air will probably only cost you about two or three kilometres a day anyway, so. One of the great problems of electric vehicles, they don't show you the percentage of the battery that readily now. They show you the distance to to recharge. 
The great problem of that is that all depends on how you've been driving it or whether you've been had hilly, a lot of stop starts or a whole range of things. I think I'd prefer a little bit more information to be readily available on the screen in front of the driver. Yeah, I think I'd like to see the amount of cars remaining because the distance remaining doesn't take into account what you're going to encounter in that distance. Is it what type of roads are going to be, the stop start hills or whatever? So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I'd rather see the battery charge remaining. Evan, lovely to talk to you, mate. Uh, thanks very much. We'll have a few more uh, test vehicles coming up, of which I will appreciate your thoughtful input. Catch up soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's Evan Jones, our road testing man, who likes his sports cars but understands the practicality of vans and the future and the direction that an electric van can push us towards. This is Overdrive across Australia. We received an email from a listener, Rodney, who said, Hi team from Overdrive, love your program, David. I thought this Microlino car innovation startup might interest you. We need these in Oz cities. Give the petrol guzzlers a rethink about their mighty SUVs. Can you see a way to get it implemented, mate? Thank you, Rodney. I appreciate your comments about the program. And I'm a little concerned that I could live up to your expectations of what we might be able to bring about. Nonetheless, we did a bit of research and found that Microlino is a Swedish company and that they plan to make the cars in Italy. They are planning to build electric vehicles in the size and shape that was pioneered in the mid-50s with a number of microcars. Their prototype vehicle looks very much like one of the better-known vehicles from the 50s, the Isetta BMW. Think of a modern Fiat 500 and reduce the size by about 50%. The Isetta was launched in November 1953 to the motoring press. It was less than 2.3 metres long, that's about 7.5 feet. You enter through the front door, which is basically the front panel of the car. The steering wheel and dashboard swing out as part of the movable structure that is hinged on the left side. If you were involved in an accident, you were meant to climb out of the vehicle through the canvas sunroof. Inside was one bench seat in the front that could take two adults. It was powered by a 236cc engine two-stroke, and took 30 seconds to reach 50 kilometres an hour, with a top speed of only 75 kilometres an hour. The fuel tank held 13 litres, and was said to be able to achieve somewhere between 4 to 5.6 litres per 100 kilometres fuel consumption. Hardly great figures when you consider a hybrid RAV4 today could do just that. The 1950s Assetta did come back into the public eye when it was used by the main character, Steve Urkel, in the TV program Family Matters in the late 80s and early 90s. Another well-known micro-vehicle from the 50s was the Messerschmitt, which had a narrower body with the front wheels protruding from the body structure and covered by mudguards, and it placed room for one passenger behind the driver, a little like a fighter aeroplane. The key element of these early microcars were that they were three-wheeled, mostly with two wheels at the front and one at the back. They had small motorbike-type engines that started around 240cc, although they did grow a bit over time. 
you can get an idea of how small they were when you consider that a Gogomobile was about 27% longer than the Isetta. There have been many other micro cars over the years from a wide range of manufacturers. Quite a few were startups. These included things like the Mazda R360 or the Subaru 360. In the late 70s, there was a Bond car, nothing to do with James and the Secret Service, but this vehicle arose out of Reliant vehicles, which are a little different in that they had one wheel at the front and two wheels at the back. The larger Reliant van appeared in the television show Only Fools and Horses. But back to the microcars, the principle was not to take up a lot of space, to be very elementary in their design, and thus cheaper, and of course much more economic to run. The move to electrification has reignited an interest in micro-vehicles, and Citroen, for example, has produced a prototype concept called the Amy, which looks very much like a square Lego block, the one with just four little studs on the top. The modern micro-liner is said to have a range of 228 kilometres, a top speed of 90 kilometres an hour and weighs just a smidgen under 500 kilograms. And it can be charged on a household plug in just four hours. Given that it would be very hard to achieve five-star safety rating performance, they would be suited to a very urban market which might embrace a new urban design style with very slow speeds on residential streets. Our interview in this program with Chris Stapleton might be the sort of significant changes we have to make to our design and attitude to local access of vehicles for this type of vehicle to comfortably find a market in our communities. You're listening to Overdrive. When we look to measure the impact of a road or any other transport system, we often look at the performance of vehicles in terms of total volumes, the average speed, the distance they have to travel, and perhaps even the convenience for the driver. If we have to consider broader factors, we might look into taking account of noise and air pollution. But does our road layout affect the very fundamental nature of our communities, not just access to the activities for the pursuit of happiness, but the manner in which we view others and the type of activities, good and bad, we get caught up in? Chris Stapleton is a transport planner who strives to see the whole picture. We've had him on the program a couple of times in the last few weeks, and what a good idea that is. He joins us again. G'day, Chris. G'day. Now, you did a trip where you're in America and you headed out through Harrisburg. This is sort of west and a bit south of New York and certainly west of Pennsylvania. It's on the Pennsylvania border. It happens to be the state capital, which you'd never guess, because you've got Pittsburgh and Philadelphia as the obvious places. And, and Harrisburg, I think, has about forty-five thousand people in it only. Yeah, and and yet it's the it's the capital city. And I, I think that whole journey was a was a revelation to me about how driver behaviour and the way you design things sort of happens by chance. And sort of, you can also make it go wrong by design. You got to a town a little beyond it, but asked them about Harrisburg. What was your inquiries and what was your direction of your inquiries? That was uh, Gettysburg, the famous battle place. And and I, I was chatting to people there and I said, 
does Harrisburg have a high crime rate? And the two people I was with happened to be social planners. I mean, it was met in an Italian restaurant, but never mind. And uh, they said, well, yes, how do you know that? And I said, because it just was designed to separate people. And once you start separating people, they start forming their own cliques and they, they uh, and the people inside feel isolated. Now, at the same time, I then started going along the smaller towns and realized that in America, all drivers, without exception, practically speaking, are much more polite about pedestrians than, than Australians. And in fact, basically, uh, you can, you can uh, cross the road wherever you like in a small town and people will actually just give way to you. They'll stop. I thought to begin with, it was just to do the fact that everybody's armed and they don't like each other. But uh, I decided it was just a completely different habit. Part and parcel that prompted you was Harrisburg is on the Susquehanna River, isn't it? Yep. And there are a limited number of crossings, but you went across one of those. Now, you talked about barriers. You were on uh, Forster Street, I believe, a major bridge across the, the river. What did you notice about that road? What came to your attention? Well, I was driving through and I was uh, I was admiring the um, fairly posh residential areas on both sides, lots of trees, houses in the trees and all the rest of it, and, you know, relatively dense. And then I suddenly realised there was a Jersey barrier going along, you know, one of those things where you can't cross as a pedestrian and, and or a car. And this Jersey barrier went on forever. There was no way that pedestrians could cross from one area to the other. And that gave me the hint that here we are in the exact opposite to what urbanism should be about. Urbanism should be about people being able to get around by any means in their local area. So that became a barrier. It's like, you know, you might have had one football team on one side and the other, and you shouted at each other across the gulf. It's, it is it is such a significant both physically but almost symbolically, as uh, us and them? Yes, I mean, I, I was reminded of, um, you know, the wrong side of the tracks type of thing. Hmm. Uh, you know, railways, we understand, form barriers. And in fact, again, when I started travelling, I realised that the railways hadn't even formed barriers through the Midwest of America for a long time. Some towns still have crossings virtually every 150 metres across the railway, which is why you see those movies of serious accidents happening. There's an awful lot of, of railway crossings in America. So the, the railway barriers aren't there so much. And this barrier was just so powerful. The interesting thing about the railways is that uh, the thing that has tended to perhaps remove some of those and focus them on a few roads, which makes them big roads themselves, is that you were saying the length of trains? Yes. Uh, it was quite interesting, again, to, to look at the way the history of, had started with with shorter, closer links, cross rings. And then as the trains get longer, they obviously park for longer and stop. And so the the the, the two ends of the train became the, I've decided that the, the, the dimension of the bigger arterial roads in towns. So you, you you've got a as distribution within the within the because a lot of the well, all of those towns in the in the Midwest, without exception, were grid road towns. I just 150 by 150 metre square blocks going on forever. Some people have moved, tried to move away from that and put in curvy sorts of roads that aren't through traffic. You have a problem with that? Oh, yes. There are two problems. I think the first one is it, 
absolutely increases travel distance when you're driving. So if you're going to the, if you're going, let's say, just north of where you live, and the only exit road from where you are is to the south, guess what? You're going to do probably four times more traveling to get to the other school pickup you've got or whatever it is, auntie who lives five blocks away up, up north. You're going to have to go around forever to get back to their place. So, and that, of course, means that for every extra kilometer you've designed into the system by, mis- by mistake, that means the roads are more crowded and busy. And that, that's true in all of those sorts of places. Our Denver is the famous one in America. Denver ha- has what are, are called in America pods of residential development about one, one kilometer square and quite often only a single access to them. And they're just appalling. The second lot of people, of course, is you're going to see auntie five blocks above you to take your child over there or something like that. Even more amazing is you can't actually get across them by as a pedestrian. So you can't let your, your six-year-old go up the road and cross because there's no either no crossing or complete disregard for how somebody like that would cross these busier roads. And thirdly, to bring the other one in, and this is my favourite annoyance in Sydney, is roads like Cumberland Highway are noted to be um, a bus route. And have you ever stood on the side of, you know, 100,000 vehicles a day going past you? The heat wave from the cars, let alone anything else, and, and the chance of getting across the road and the bus comes along and you can see it coming and you've got a three-minute wait at the, uh, uh, the pedestrian crossing to get across to the bus stop, all wrong. It's an interesting, the ratio between the actual distance you have to travel and as the crow flies, but if it is a longer distance, uh, does that not give people the psychology of needing or feeling they need to drive faster? or that they've built up speed, or that they're in the car longer, and so speed becomes more of a consciousness to them. Whereas even if you can't walk the distance, if you were driving a short distance, if it's a short distance, or whether you're doing 20 or or 60 kilometres an hour, is perceivably not that much different. I agree entirely. I I think my dad used to have a lovely saying, take it easy through the village, because I was the young hoon at 20 years old, driving my car. It was such a wonderful expression. So I used to go through his village really slowly. And then I get to the, I get to this cancel sign in those days and uh, put my foot down. But the point is that he taught me to take it easy through the village forever. I, I never stopped doing that now. And I think the, as you say, if you, if you're going to see auntie and she's only five blocks away, 500 meters, you're quite happy to do 20 K for that. If you're going to be doing two, three kilometres to make the same journey, you are not going to do it at that speed. You are going to go faster. The grid system some people might be concerned about because it means there's a lot of roads everywhere carrying a lot of traffic. Mm -hmm. You take the opposite view of having a grid system that then has a small number of vehicles on each of the roads, which then means that you can start to give priority to not suppressing that, but making not overcompensating for those vehicles. It's only a few, a relative few, and we can think of the road then more in terms of its multi-use, in terms of bikes, electric bikes, scooters, and so on. Is that an important part of understanding what the grid system should work like? Yes, I think it is. I think uh, somewhere like Maryland's and places like that, the sort of 
1950s suburbs really illustrate that well because they've got roads with, um, again, intersections every 150 metres going along, and each one's carrying maybe 80 vehicles an hour at the most, i.e. locals. And, of course, they can get out. You don't need to do anything. You just have a giveaway sign. And assuming the traffic on your main road is going slow E, like not 80 kilometres an hour, but going slowly, this all works very fine. So you've then got to concentrate on how to get your pedestrians across those busier roads, but your local streets are all carrying very gentle volumes of traffic. Christopher, lovely to talk to you again. Thanks very much for your time both now and throughout the year. I appreciate it greatly. It's been fun, hasn't it? Yeah. See you. Thanks very much. And that's Chris Stapleton, a traffic engineer, transport planner, and a man who's travelled the world and looks to try and see the breadth and depth of what we do and how we do it and what the impact is from the transport systems we provide. This has been Overdrive. My thanks to Evan Jones, listener Rodney, Chris Stapleton, Peugeot Australia and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials and podcasts look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.